Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host, Grant Pemberton. And on today's episode, Ken and I are coming to you from our remote Thanksgiving location to talk to you about curses. You may wonder why we're talking about curses around Thanksgiving, and we'll leave that conjecture up to you. Who knows? Thanksgiving can be a crazy time. But we want to come and talk about curses. Ken, you, you uh, emailed me a couple uh, weeks ago or sent me a text about this is something you want to do. So this is top of mind for you, I, I assume? Yeah, that's right. It's top of mind because, you know, we did the show on Halloween and that got some people thinking about stuff like that. Um, and so a few people wrote to me directly rather than into the podcast. And, you know, the issue of curses was on their minds, um, again, partially because of that podcast and maybe because of some other things that are going on in their own lives and ministries. And so um, I thought, you know, this is actually a very interesting area that it, it warrants taking a whole show to talk about because it is a controversial area. And I think it's often misunderstood. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think as with so many things that we've talked about, you know, when we're thinking from a really modern Western paradigm, um, we sort of tend to dismiss all of these things, the demonic, spiritual, and, and all of that. But as I'm seeing, you know, here in Nashville, our churches in the, in sort of the artsy district um, of, uh, of Nashville and, the other team is really aware of curses. I'm seeing I'm seeing books in stores um, of of how to how to put curses on, how to put spells on, and right. you know, the the becoming a witch is pretty commonplace. Believe it or not, you know if if you're unaware of that, it's becoming pretty popular. Yep. And um and and actually pretty mainstream, uh, which is really strange. And so you better believe there are people around you that are learning and interacting with curses and you better believe they're real. And so it's important as believers, I think, to, to talk about it and have a knowledge of it. Right. Well, and I would add to that um, again, this is not a pro or an anti-Trump statement, please. Nobody get triggered just because I'm mentioning the former president's name. Uh, but there was a lot of um, traffic going around on the internet immediately after his uh, election in 2016 and his, you know, coming to start his administration, when the first Halloween of his administration came up, there was a lot of traffic out there um, saying that many witches had banded together. There were whole covens that were seeking to curse the president to bring his administration down, et cetera. And I'm not aware of anything like that previous to Donald Trump. And, you know, some would say, well, you know, he uniquely deserved it. Well, maybe, but even if, even if that's right, um, one could seriously question whether the use of witchcraft against any official is ever a good thing. Yeah. And hopefully if you're listening to this, you, you know, the answer to that question, which is yeah. no, um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, I don't think people realize until you're really out there looking for it how mainstream um the witch stuff has become not just shows about it but but literal spell books that are flying up i went into a local it's actually like uh, a chain bookstore 
a month or so ago, uh, a large bookstore that's national. And I couldn't believe this whole section. And it was kind of around the kids section of how to be a witch and how to, how to cast spells and how to, I mean, it was, it was, it blew my mind, you know, things, things that I couldn't even imagine happening. So I think this is very uh, apropos time. So on that point, before we really get going here, let me just make two comments. The first one is that um, I just learned this week, not that I've been hanging out there, uh, but uh, TikTok actually has a subsection within it known as Witch Talk. And it is directly uh, on the topic of spells, curses, things like this. It's like a sub channel within TikTok. Now, Orbis Ministries has a TikTok channel, but I don't actually have the TikTok app on my phone. So again, I've not been there, but I read this in a credible news source uh, that this is going on. So that's that's comment one. And comment two is that Harry Potter really had a big part in opening the door to all of this because what's it been out now around 10 years or maybe 15 years um, but J.K. Rowling, she became a billionaire off of the Harry Potter series and all of the other things that go with that, the, you know, the movie rights and the um, paraphernalia, the merchandise and so forth. So um, anyway, with Harry Potter, though, the idea of witchcraft became cool and it became viewed as an acceptable means of defending yourself or, you know, justifying your name, et cetera. And this sort of thing. I think prior to Harry Potter, witchcraft was still sort of on the fringe, on the edge. The Bible, by the way, explicitly forbids witchcraft and that sort of thing, the casting of spells. We'll talk about this in a bit in just a moment. <clears throat> but, um, you know, nobody living even in the post-Christian West uh, was really thinking very much about witchcraft unless they were kind of on the fringe of society in what we typically call the counterculture and with the coming of Harry Potter, all of that got mainstreamed. And now it is viewed as perfectly acceptable, along with a large number of other behaviors that hitherto were also viewed as objectionable. And so this is further uh, evidence of the decline and fall of a Christian civilization, the, the you know, Christendom, what I've elsewhere on, on these podcasts called the Caritas Synthesis, uh, the building of a civilization modeled on Christian ideals, uh, the fact that this could even be mainstream. And now that I in the military, the U.S. military, they're actually ordaining uh, chaplains who are part of the Church of Satan. I don't think there's many of them, but, but they are, in fact, part of the mainstream landscape. And so back to your point, uh, nobody should think that they are that they're living in a zone where this sort of thing isn't going on. It may not be going on in your field of view, but that doesn't mean it isn't going on. Right, right. And so I know that we're, we, we want to kind of just begin to, to shed some light on the fact that, that curses are real. Uh, the Bible talks about curses and uh, we, can, we can experience those. And, and I think we're going to talk in a later episode of really what to do um, with that. But, um, but yeah, so I've, I've got a question because we talk about this uh, from a lot of different points of view. And I know you and I have actually encountered um, in praying for folks, uh, people that have, we've discerned that they seem to have a curse on them, uh, but they're pretty positive that uh, that can't happen. 
And so uh, they, they typically quote this uh, verse in Proverbs uh, 26.2. It says, like a flitting sparrow, like a flying swallow. So a curse without cause shall not alight. And I know that both of us, we've heard people argue with us as they're manifesting that, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that they can't be cursed. And do you want to talk a little bit about that, Ken, as far as why, why do believers care about this and why should we learn about it? Yeah, it's, it's a very good point to uh, start with. Um, so the, the scripture does say that a curse without cause cannot alight. Um, but what that implies, although it doesn't say it explicitly, let me say that again, because somebody will have missed that I said it. What it implies without saying it explicitly is that a curse with a cause can alight. So if there is a reason for a curse to land, it will. And with that, we can go back to something that I've said before, and I you know, have in my teachings on deliverance and demonization. The devil is an opportunist. He seeks to exploit what we could call chinks in our armor. And when there are things that have been done or um, maybe spoken uh, either way, these can become the source of kind of, you know, burrowing in and causing the very kinds of problems that arise from curses. Uh, we'll come back to that idea in a minute, but I just want to say that across the globe as I've traveled, I've been in society after society after society, and I would say the belief in curses is nearly universal. The only people who really deny them tend to be postmodern Westerners. And by the way, a lot of postmodern Westerners are engaging in witchcraft. See our earlier comments about the mainstream bookshop you went into, the, the Witch Talk channel on TikTok, uh, et cetera. But um, you know, if you are in South America, witchcraft in uh, particularly among tribal societies, but let me tell you, you'll run into it in the cities as well. I've run into it in uh, major metropolitan areas like Santiago and Buenos Aires. It is not rare to find people who are casting spells and throwing curses at people they don't like. If you move north in South America into nations like Peru and Bolivia, I'd say it's even more prominent and pronounced because those countries are much more uh, in tune with nativist religions, animistic thought um, of the kind that was in place before the coming of the, of, you know, the West, the Spanish conquest. Whereas Chile, Argentina, Brazil, you know, these are commonly uh, known as the ABC countries. I said them out of order, Argentina, Brazil, Chile. But uh, these, these countries are more developed. They have a much more um, powerful economic engine. They're much more closely aligned with Western nations and Western sentiments. So I'm not saying you won't run into it in those countries. I'm just saying if you find it in the ABC countries, you'll find it even more in countries like Colombia and Venezuela and Peru and Bolivia and so forth, um, because in many ways, the, the culture, especially out of the big cities, is much more attuned to the way it was before the coming of the Spaniards. Then if we move to Africa, um, you can hardly find a nation in Africa where witchcraft is not practiced. And even among believers, even among Christians, many of them still resort to using it or revert to it when their prayers don't seem to be working. And I could tell many stories about this, but we'll just leave it at that. Um, if you move to Europe, 
and you go to countries like Italy and Greece, the evil eye is quite common in these nations and something akin to it, but it has a different name depending on the country you're in, is quite common in nations like Hungary, the Czech Republic, in the Balkan states. They all have their own form of the evil eye. Um, and at least in Spanish, which of course is the language of Spain, um, the word for curse is maledicion, which means an evil saying or a bad saying. So this implies that some curses are spoken, but there are other times, and we'll see this in scripture when we get there, uh, there are other times when, script, when curses don't arise because of a malediction, which is the English translation of that, uh, but rather because of actions people have undertaken, which have opened doorways that allow curses to fall upon them. And I know that's a shocking idea, especially for people who believe, hey, it was all done at the cross. You know, a curse without cause cannot alight. What they're really saying in that, when they quote uh, Proverbs 26.2, first of all, for most people, they're just repeating something they've heard somewhere else. They haven't really thought it through. But what they're really implying <clears throat> is that because I'm a believer and it was all done at the cross, well, then there's no problem here. Nothing to see, folks. Keep moving, and that's it. But in fact, um, we're going to see that that that's, that's fallacious thinking. Um, and if you understand that a curse can come, not just because of what someone says is a malediction, but also because of an action a person has undertaken that puts them under a curse, uh, you can immediately see what happened to Ananias and Sapphira in that light. They tried lying to the Holy Spirit and they said, you know, we got this much money, but actually it was this much money. And so they, they understated what they had gotten and it didn't end very well for them, did it? It cost both of them their lives. And it's not because Peter cursed them or spoke them to death. I mean, he did say, Ananias, how has Satan so filled your heart that you would lie to the Holy Spirit? He did say that, but he didn't say, you know, Ananias, I curse you or, you know, die, you gravy sucking pig or, you know, anything like that. So we can actually see in the life of two New Testament believers who were spirit filled, living after Pentecost, in the Jerusalem community who were obviously committed to the purpose of that community because they wanted to be recognized as key leaders, just as Barnabas had been at the end of chapter four of Acts. Now in the beginning of chapter five, we have the story of their death because they basically try to mimic what Barnabas had done in selling a piece of property, donating the money to the church. And everybody spoke well of Barnabas. They were high-fiving him and saying, you know, what a generous man. And you really are behind the cause of Christ and all this. And so Ananias and Sapphira clearly want to be on that train. And so they sell their property, but they hold some of it back. And it's in the holding of it back and lying to the Holy Spirit that they've opened themselves up to something that falls on them so heavily that, in fact, they lose their lives for it. Mm. And so if we can then be cursed, I mean, again, what you're saying is we say it all the time. We're talking about matters of sanctification, not salvation. That's and correct. People get those confused quite a bit. And the That's all done at the cross is in regards to salvation. That's that's, that's right. that that mindset is that but there's this whole process between right now and whenever it is you die uh that is the process of sanctification and so this is again it falls into that with demonization with everything else we talk about it it's right squarely 
uh, in the middle of that. And so with that, with, with thinking about the idea, okay, potentially we can be cursed. Um, what, what do the scriptures say about that? What do we, what do we do? Well, before we, before we move to that, let me just say very quickly, um, in my journeys among uh, Islamic lands, it is very common to run into Islamic curses uh, where Muslims are cursing one another. They might curse Christians. Um, it is commonly known that when Christians leave the house of Islam, uh, sometimes known as the Dar al-Salam, the house of peace, uh, they cross into the Dar al-Harp, which is the house of war. And with that, um, we often have to deliver uh, newly converted Christians of the Islamic curses that they uh, are tagged with, I guess is the best way to say it, as they exit Islam. This is a, this is a known uh, phenomenon that we observe quite regularly. Uh, mm -hmm. there, there are even specific known things that happen in people's bodies as a result of this. Among Hindus, curses are common. In my travels among the Chinese and in Southeast Asia, they're very common. Um, I've run into them in the Philippines and in Malaysia. And of course, in my travels in Australia, uh, not so much among white majority uh, culture there, although it's a declining majority, um, but certainly among aboriginals and among peoples who have migrated to Australia, say from Southeast Asia, who are immigrants, um, this sort of behavior is common. So pretty much on most of the continents of the world, these things are well known. They're just not as well known among kind of white mainstream Protestant Christians in North America and by extension, I'd say in kind of white society in Australia, New Zealand, in England, in Canada. But, but this is really a function of one single thing. And that is that um, overwhelmingly the theology that has been written for the Protestant church in the last half millennium since the reformation has been very strongly anti-supernatural, not universally, but very strongly. And this is particularly true among those streams of Protestantism that have been influenced by Calvinism, where essentially all of this has been relegated to the realm of superstition and whatnot. And so it, it's, it's kind of treated as like, what are you even talking about here? This is, this is foolish. And that's because um, theologically and academically within uh, Protestantism after the Reformation, there emerged a strain of Protestantism known as Protestant scholasticism. And in many ways, it, it kind of feels like, reads like, it has a lot of things about it that remind you of Catholic scholasticism of, of the type that, say, Duns Scotus and Thomas Aquinas were writing around the turn between the first and the second millennium. And so, you know, here we are now down the road, half a millennium and more, and we get the Reformation and the Protestants fall into the same thing. And the very nature of scholasticism is it's very academic. It's very intellectual. Uh, it doesn't really account nearly as much for the dynamics of the spirit world. And that becomes the heritage of much of modern Western Protestantism. And you find it in many, many uh, strains and traditions of the Protestant churches. Right, right. Well, it's a, it's a pretty common problem. It uh, is. At least here, but yeah. it, really is, it's, it really is an interesting problem amongst, uh, you know, a very, um, very geocentric view. You know, like you were saying, I mean, everyone else in the world, 
is uh, is very tuned into this. So that's right. So let's take a look at what the Bible says, because the Bible actually does take the existence of curses as something that's real. And let's start with that uh, Proverbs 26, two verse that you've already asked about um, a curse without cause cannot alight. Well, you wouldn't put a verse like that in the Bible if you didn't believe that there were curses. And you also wouldn't put it in the Bible if you didn't believe that at least sometimes they can land on people. So let's just start with that one. It's not chronologically the first one, but it's where we had our conversation begin. So we'll pick that one. You can see from the verse, um, a curse without cause cannot alight. It's not the same thing as saying all curses are bogus and you don't need to worry about them at all. That's a very different kind of statement. And yet that's where most Christians are, are framing their thinking about this. And so right there, we can see in that very verse that people use to dismiss the idea of curses, uh, we can see that, uh, that the Bible does, in fact, take the idea of curses very seriously. Now, for our next uh, little bit, I want to uh, go to Deuteronomy chapter 27, and this is, um, this is, they build a mount, uh, an altar on Mount Ebal, or Ebal is the way most uh, Americans would say it. And it talks about the curses that are to be uh, uttered from Mount Ebal. And so Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, I'm in verse 9, keep silence and hear, O Israel, this day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Now note that. This is being spoken to the people of God. Do we consider ourselves today, now, New Testament Christians, to be the people of God? Yes, we do. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his uh, commandments and statutes, which I command you this day. And that day Moses charged the people, saying, when you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, and then six tribes are named. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, and then six more tribes are named. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice. Now watch this if you need proof that the Bible takes curses seriously. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Now what does that mean? It means that the people were saying, we accept the curse if we do this thing that is forbidden. There's no other way to interpret that verse unless you just choose to ignore the clear meaning of language. And by the way, it means the same in Hebrew as in English. Then it goes on, second curse. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or mother and all the people shall say, amen. Now this sounds like the commandment of the 10 commandments that we're to honor our father and mother. And that first one sounds like the making of a graven image. Mm, yep. Number 17, verse 17, cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark and all the people shall say, amen. So if we move a landmark, and by the way, landmarks are more than just like a stone on the edge of a field. Uh, the scripture speaks elsewhere of moving ancient boundaries as it pertains to things like oh, human sexuality, just to pick something out of the air that's common right now. So, and all the people shall say, amen, let it be so. We will accept that curse if we do this. And then number four, cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road and all the people shall say, amen. So we're to treat the disadvantaged and the handicapped 
uh, and not mislead them or to treat them well, or to you know, kind of look out for them when they can't look out for themselves. <clears throat> kind of reminds you of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, and all the people shall say, amen. All right, so if the courts are corrupt and we take advantage of those who live among us, whether or not they're citizens, this is what falls on us. And then number six, cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness and all the people shall say, amen. Now this is referring specifically to adultery and it's also referring to the dishonoring of parents, specifically the father. And it mirrors one of the specific injunctions of which there are many found in Leviticus chapter 18 and all the people shall say, Amen. So if you do these things, you subject yourself to a curse. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of an animal and all the people shall say, amen. So we're around the, you know, the periphery here of a kind of sexual immorality that is now starting to flourish in America that has been unheard of mostly, except maybe in rural communities for a long, long time. It's specifically referring to bestiality, having sexual uh, acts with animals. Amen. So there's a curse on that one. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. So this is contemplating the idea of recombinant marriages, mixed marriages. But if she lives under your roof and she is your sister, your half-sister, your stepsister, if you have sexual relations with her, there's a curse on you. And so there's a particular kind of curse that comes with incest. And all the people shall say, Amen. Let the curse fall on us. Now, I'll just pause for here, here for a moment. I think on these last two, the bestiality and the incest, I, I don't think there'd be a single listener to this program who would say, oh, yeah, those things are fine. Go ahead and have sex with animals. Go ahead and engage in incest. Because many of the problems, not so much the bestiality, um, but certainly the incest stuff, these are the very things that have caused so much of the rage and so much of the pain and the, the just the kind of craziness that we've seen when it comes to human sexual relations in our modern time in the public discourse. Because people who were accosted, who were abused in their own homes, spend years working through all of that stuff. God was watching out for this. He knew millennia ago that people will fall into this stuff. And so he said, absolutely not, you cannot do this. And everybody who was under the covenant said, yeah, let it be so. We, don't, we will accept the curse if we do this. Clear idea is we're not ever going to do it, so why would we have to worry about it? But in our time, these things are going on. Curse would be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law. So again, another form of incest, and all the people shall say amen. Curse would be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say amen. So now we're talking about the commandment against murder. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and all the people shall say, Amen. And cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. So these are the curses, and, and note that these are the Levites that are saying this, and so you better believe that the Bible takes the idea of curses seriously. And in fact, this, this last verse here, uh, Deuteronomy 27, 26, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. This is picked up for us in the New Testament in, uh, in two places. One of them 
is found in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. A lot of people uh, quote this verse, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not by, abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. That's Galatians 3.10. And so what Paul is referring to right there, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, is that if you try to justify yourself in the sight of God by following all of the commandments of the law, and you break even one of them, then all the curses of the law fall on you. So Paul is actually contemplating, as a New Testament believer, that a curse could come on a Christian. He's writing to Christians. James, the elder, also speaks of this in James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, then you have become a transgressor of the law, and so speak, and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy for one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. So James is making the argument that if you break one part of the law, even while you're keeping all the rest of it, you are now guilty of transgressing the whole law. So what a lot of people have wanted to do, and they're really following the thinking of John Calvin here, and to a lesser extent, Luther as well, Martin Luther, is they want to say, well, Christ freed us from the curse of the law, and that part is correct. He did free us from the curse of the law. But here's the thing. There are many other curses that arise independently of the law. And which, which doctors throw them? Uh, practitioners of witchcraft throw them, uh, people who are involved in Wicca or Druidism or whatever, they use curses and spells. These are not the curses of the law that we're speaking of when we refer to these things. And as a result, we find that um, I think, the, I think the, the sentiments of people are often, um, what do I want to say? They're somewhat shallow. They're somewhat misinformed. Because they, they think that, hey, it's all done and dusted, man. I'm in Christ. Nothing can touch me. It isn't quite that simple. Because we, we live in a spiritual minefield. We live on a battlefield. First um, John 5.21. But we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so those who are not on the side of light, those who are uh, of the kingdom of darkness, uh, they may use all kinds of techniques and tools to derail the cause of the gospel and to harm those who are servants of the gospel. Paul says in one of his letters, finally, brothers, pray for us, for not all have faith, and we have many opponents. Well, this is the world in which we live. That's so good. So what you're saying then, I guess, just to kind of go back to, because um, I know Paul elsewhere talks about Jesus becoming a curse uh, and and becoming cursed so that we can, you know, be removed from the curse. So even though we spent some time going over the curses that came with law breaking, you're not suggesting that those curses still apply to believers um, that you read um, about, about that. Is that correct? That's correct. And that's because Jesus took the penalty of not fulfilling the entire Mosaic law. Um, I mean, that, that's what we mean when we say Christ freed us from the curse of the law. 
But can we just agree that these things that are in the law are still good and holy and righteous? And therefore, that doesn't mean that we should cast them all aside. In fact, I wasn't really going to talk about this, but let me just say it here. I've taught on this elsewhere, and it often confuses people. When we look at the code of the law as found in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, um, we have three components to the law, three components. The first two that I'm going to mention don't count anymore. The first of the two that don't count, so this is the first of three total, uh, is what we today would call the civic code. And this is really the laws that govern the administration of the government of old Israel. And I, I, I'm very clear in my mind, and I hopefully all of you that are listening are clear in your own, that old Israel, the Israel of the kings, is not the Israel of today. I'm aware it exists on the same piece of geography, but the, the governments were very, very different. The administration of old Israel really passed away at the fall of the temple and of the, of the capital city of Jerusalem in 586 to the Babylonians. 70 years later, there's a restoration to the land and they attempt to reestablish the, uh, the, the government of Israel. Um, and on some level they do it because of course they exist as a nation until the Romans destroy them in the year 70 AD. And so you get approximately a nearly 600 year period from the, re the restoration um, in 516 going right through to 70 AD. It's, it's almost 600 years. So they have to run the government on something. But during that time, Israel was frequently under foreign jurisdiction, and consequently, the laws they had were not purely Jewish laws. But that's all civic code. That's how do you administrate a society. And then after the Romans destroyed Israel, uh, destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, um, in fact, there was no Israel until the War of Independence in 1948, which is not quite in our lifetime, but it's in our era. And so for, you know, approximately 1900 years, I mean, there was just nothing. I mean, forget about the Babylonian captivity of 70 years. For 1900 years, there, there was no need for a civic code at all. And when Israel came back into being, to some degree, they tried to recapitulate many of the laws that were there for civic concourse uh, in ancient times, but some of them no longer applied. They had many new laws they had to add uh, in order to accommodate modern times. Um, some of them they modified because things had changed. So what we understand as the, as the you know, political government of Israel today is not really the same as what was uh, outlined in the Mosaic Code. And please understand when I say this, I am not anti-Israeli. I am not anti-Semitic. I'm simply recognizing the reality of two different societies separated by approximately two millennia or more. So that's category one. That one doesn't apply anymore. Category two is what we call the ceremonial code that also begins with a C. So we had the civic code. Now we've got the ceremonial code. What's the ceremonial code? Well, it's everything that we read about uh, primarily in Leviticus, but there are some things about it in Exodus and Numbers as well. 
um, that deal with how do we offer sacrifices? How do you how do you offer a cow? How do you offer a sheep? What do you do with the turtle dove? And you know how much washing do you have to do? And how do you purify priests and all that? Well, there there hasn't been a temple in Jerusalem since the year seventy A.D. Even after the reestablishment of Israel as a modern political nation state, they still don't have a temple. There are people who want to build one. Um, and there are many within the Orthodox community that have made all of the preparations to do so. And in fact, it's kind of an open secret that um, if they ever get the green light to go up on the Temple Mount and build the temple up there again, uh, they can probably have a fully functioning temple erected within a year. Um, all the materials are in place. They've uh, got the bloodline of a red heifer for purification. I mean, the, the Orthodox are very serious about this. Um, but for Christians, we are very clear from the book of Hebrews, we don't need the sacrificial system anymore. There remains no further sacrifice beyond the blood of Jesus. So in that sense, it is one and done. And so it doesn't matter how many bulls or goats or sheep or anything else you might want to offer. It's not necessary because that part was all done at the cross. So part one and part two, civic code, ceremonial code, those don't apply to us now. But then we come to the moral code, and the moral code deals with a whole range of behaviors that are undertaken by human beings. And what's interesting is that um, these behaviors that we just read about that were cursed in Deuteronomy chapter 27, all of these behaviors are a summary, a restatement, uh, a recapitulation, if you will, of elsewhere in the Mosaic Code this is, by the way, why Deuteronomy is called Deuteronomy. Deuteros means second in Greek, and nomos means law in Greek. So Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. What it's doing is summarizing many of the commandments and um, obligations that were put upon the Jewish people. All of these moral commands are still in effect. Now, I can show that to you from a structural standpoint when we look at the council in Acts chapter 15, where they, they're having to decide, what are we going to command the Gentiles who are coming in? What do they need to follow? And they ultimately come down to only four things. Two of them are no sexual immorality, uh, which is a very broad category. It's not just sexual intercourse. So anything that's unclean in the mind of the law, that's not allowed and the eating of blood is also forbidden. But what's interesting is when you look at the structure of the apostolic letter that issues from Acts chapter 15, and you lay it down against the structure of the moral code within Leviticus 18 down through, down through uh, Leviticus 22, it is an exact, where it says one in Acts, it, that's what comes first in Leviticus. What comes second in the Acts letter is the second thing that comes in Leviticus. So what they're doing is, as a lawyer would say, they're incorporating by reference and inclusion all of the things that are part of the moral code of Leviticus. And they're saying, you still do need to abide by this. And if you needed further proof of it, if you read the letters of Paul, all of the things that he writes in the second part of his letters to all the churches that he founded, since you're in Christ, because you've been forgiven, because you are the children of God, you should live this way, all of that this way stuff exactly tracks the moral requirements of the law. And so not only from the Apostolic Council in Jerusalem, but from the letters of none other than Paul the Apostle, the Apostle of Grace, 
the very things that were forbidden to people under the old covenant in the moral category are still forbidden in the new in the new covenant mm. now why does all of that matter <clears throat> well it matters because what it says is these things that were forbidden then are still forbidden now and i'm not saying uh, i'm not saying so much about curses as much as i'm saying these things are still worth living by and as i travel as i meet with people as i talk with people there is a wide variety of behaviors that are that are well widely accepted within the modern church that would have been unthinkable to a first century jew who had become a follower of jesus mm. well that's so good there's uh there's a lot to be said and parse through there a lot of future episodes there's a lot we could talk about i have some teaching on all of that in my uh, series called Grace, Law, and Freedom. Uh, that can be had from my website, orbisministries.org. And it's called Grace, Law, and Freedom, Part One, Navigating the Maze of the New Morality. And so, um, you know, those who want to study this further and hear more about it, well, that would be a good place to go. By the way, we do have an app with Orbis, but that material is not available on the app and it will not be put up on the app. So if people want to get it, they're going to have to purchase it again at orbisministries.org. Now let's keep talking about curses that are outside this business of the curse of the law. And I want to go now to the book of Numbers, which is the fourth book of the Pentateuch. And it says um, in Numbers chapter 22, verse 1, then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was, over, uh, was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was the king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, watch this now, watch this as we read this. Verse 6, come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So Balak, this, uh, this Moabite king, he gets somebody that he, you know, we would say has some mojo. And he specifically wants a malediction placed upon the people of Israel. Now, the story goes on through the end of chapter 22 into 23, into 24, I'll summarize it rather than read all that, but the bottom line is um, the Lord, first of all, warns Balaam and says, don't you dare go with those men. But Balaam is determined to go because he's been offered great riches, great treasure to issue this curse. And so he accompanies the men who were sent by King Balak, and he goes up on the mountain and four times he attempts to curse the children of Israel but each time, because he is fundamentally a Yahwist, albeit a corrupt one, uh, when he opens his mouth to utter a malediction, he ends up prophesying blessing because the spirit of God comes upon him 
and he's unable to do what he wants to do. That doesn't mean there isn't such a thing as a curse. It means that God overcame him, overpowered him, and sovereignly protected his people from the power of that curse. And this is why in the end, Balak, it says he clapped his hands. So he's like, come now, do right, do what I paid you to do. But he can't actually do it. And so now Balaam says, look, um, I can't curse these people. God has blessed them. There's nothing I can do to, to fight against that. But I will tell you how to corrupt them so that there will be a chink in their armor. He doesn't use that language, but that's the concept. So that they will be overcome. He says, take the most beautiful women you have in your country, send them among the children of Israel, let them seduce them. And when they fall to sexual immorality, now the chink will be in the armor and they will be able to be overcome. And so Balaam is given a very poor review in the pages of scripture. And the Bible actually tells us this about this incident in Joshua chapter 13. Um, so Moses is gone. Joshua is leading the nation. But it says uh, when they begin conquering the land, we're going uh, to start in verse, uh, verse 20. Chapter 13, verse 20 of the book of Joshua. It says, they came to Beth Peor and the slopes of Pisgah and Beth Jeshemoth. That is all the cities of the tableland and all the kingdom of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses defeated with the leaders of Midian, Evi and Rechem and Zur and Hur and Reba, the princes of Sihon who lived in the land. Verse 22 Balaam also, the son of Beor, the one who practiced divination, was killed with the sword by the people of Israel among the rest of the slain, and the border of the people of Reuben was the Jordan as a boundary. This was the inheritance of the people of Reuben. So what's it saying? It's telling us that in the end, Balaam is killed, and he's killed for the sin of divination. He actually crossed over from being a legitimate prophet of the Lord. He was seduced by money. He tried to utter a curse. It didn't work. But nevertheless, there was a penalty that fell on him. This is not the curse of the law that we are talking about in the Balaam story. This is what today we would call an occult or a witchcraft type curse. And God judged Balaam for trying to curse his people. But this is outside the boundaries of what we call the curse of the law. And so many Christians are very confused about this because they, all they've heard about in their churches is the curse of the law, the curse of the law. There are many other curses beyond that. And this is where we see one of them enacted from Numbers 22 to 24 and then spilling over the final scene of that exchange in, uh, in Joshua chapter 13. Well, and then, so... In all of this, you know, I think it's interesting the parallel that that is drawn between what we were just talking about in Acts 15, um, and and the idea of the sexual immorality sort of being the lead in to opening them up uh, to be overtaken. Um, it seems like that's a pretty big deal, and we're pretty flippant with it uh, now as a people. But it seems like it could be a pretty large pathway for curses to be able to alight. That's correct. That's exactly correct. And we see it a lot when we are 
um, taking people through uh, inner healing and deliverance prayer uh, that matters of sexual immorality are uh, they're gigantic. I mean, you know, we're, we're making this during Thanksgiving week. Uh, last weekend, I was in another city um, from where I am right now. And I prayed for a woman who was in a wheelchair, an electric wheelchair, no less. So you're pretty bad off when you're in a wheelchair, but it's even worse when you're in an electric one, because it means you don't even have motion in your arms able to, you know, push yourself around. You just need a little joystick that your hand can maneuver. Um, and I won't go into the whole story because a lot of it was very confidential to this woman, but I will just say that there was something that had happened in their family um, and it involved sexual immorality. And um, this was a part of what needed to be broken for her to get free. Let me say again, a part, not the only thing, but uh, nevertheless, these things are very significant when they are, when they are in play and in her family, it had created habit. Well, so I know we, we don't want to spend too much more time uh, talking. I know there's going to be a lot of people that are going to uh, want to deal with this. Um, I guess I know you've got a lot of teaching, uh, specifically one called Curse Breaking. Um, yep, I have a teaching called Curse Breaking. And, Again, uh, available on the website, orbisministries.org. And so maybe, in the, maybe we can piggyback off of this uh, episode um, in, in, a, in a later episode and sort of talk about what do we, how do we deal with it? Um, yeah. To give a bit of a I don't want to, I don't want to deal with any of the, how to deal with it today, but I do want to paper it further because I think we need yet more scripture buttressing this. There are so many people who said curses aren't a thing. And there are a few more verses that I think we really, or passages we really need to look at. Great. So, yeah. so our next one is in two Samuel chapter 21 and it starts out this way in verse one. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on the house of Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, for those who don't know their Bible very well, the Gibeonites were a people who, during the days of Joshua, had approached the Israelites and they pretended to be from a long way away. They were actually locals. And they put on old clothes and they brought old moldy bread in their, in their uh, bags on the camels and horses. And uh, so when, they, when, their, you know, when their foodstuffs and so forth were inspected, the people of Israel were misled. And the Bible explicitly says, no one inquired of the Lord. And so the Gibeonites did this because they knew what was happening to all of the other inhabitants of the area. And they thought, well, we'll make a covenant with the Jews and that way we won't suffer the same fate. And so the Jews actually did this under Joshua's leadership. They uh, took an oath that they would not harm them. But then they found out, oh, these guys misled us. So they made them kind of second-class citizens. They weren't exactly slaves, but, but they were indentured servants. And they, um, you know, they made them water carriers and woodcutters and things like that, doing very menial labor within the uh, Israeli society, Jewish society. And so the Gibeonites were a protected people because of that oath. Now, remember, when Joshua is uh, executing the conquest, we're sort of at roughly the year 1400 BC and, uh, and winding backward from that. So into the 1300s BC. Um, Saul becomes king about the year 1030 BC. So it's not quite all of 400 years 
but let's just say something like 350 to 375 years later, Saul is now king and he is killing the Gibeonites. And it says in the passage, I'm not really reading it, but it says that he did it because he had not carried out the instruction of the Lord with respect to the Amalekites, who were another tribal people that the Jews had made contact with. And the Amalekites tried to exterminate the Jews. And so when Saul comes to power, God says, go take care of that problem. But Saul didn't actually do the job that he was intended to do. And so he loses the kingship for this. And in his zeal to try to win back favor with God, he turns on the Gibeonites and begins to slaughter them. That's the backstory behind what we just read. So now there was a famine in the land in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. David's asking God, why is there a famine? You're supposed to be blessing us. We don't understand this. Now, that's an interesting question because many Christians would ask that same question. Lord, you're supposed to be blessing me. I mean, there's power in the atonement. Jesus died for my healing. Isaiah 53, 4, you know, surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. And the chastisement that was laid upon him was laid upon him for my sickness. And by his wounds, I am healed. But, but I'm not healed, Lord. What's going on? Why are my finances blighted? Why this? Why that? Why the other thing? So in this case, it's not a malediction. It's the actions that have been undertaken. And so David seeks the face of the Lord, and the Lord says there is blood guilt on the house of Saul. The previous administration did wrong, and that has come down upon your administration, David, and it has to do with blood guilt with respect to the Gibeonites. Well, what is blood guilt? It is the unjust shedding of blood, and I will refer you once again back to what we read in Deuteronomy 27, which is where you know, we read that long list of curses. One of them, cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say amen. And cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and all the people shall say amen. So we're not to get the jump on people. We're not to ambush them. We're not to shed innocent blood. That's exactly what Saul had done. I just read from Deuteronomy, and now I'm reading from 2 Samuel. And Saul had done that. And so what the Lord is saying is, there is a curse on the land because of the iniquity and the behavior of Saul with regard to the Gibeonites. And so David goes and speaks with the Gibeonite leaders. This is a horrific passage of scripture. Um, they work out a compromise between them that is acceptable to the Gibeonites. And it says, after all of it, in the end of verse 14, so I'm in 2 Samuel 21, 14, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. The curse was lifted because David took the curse of blood guilt seriously and sought to rectify it with the Gibeonites. Now, I didn't go into all the ins and outs of what he did, but, but you can see right there that now we're looking at David and the Gibeonite curse. And so uh, this oath-breaking was, in fact, the source of the problem. And so with that, we can understand that um, again, curses do not need to be spoken, except they had been spoken back there in Deuteronomy. And now here we are hundreds of years later, because those things are still in play. And Saul has done this thing, and it has created havoc within the nation of Israel, which David, as the new king, has to clean up. Mm. So it's, it's sort of a, a picture of, you know, there could be 
someone else has done something and brought a curse upon a family. Like that is kind of a common, commonly acceptable evangelical belief is generational curses. You know, that's correct. You will hear that um, amongst people that may or may not believe in curses, but um, you do hear that the idea of generational curses. Uh, that's exactly correct. I myself don't really like the language of generational curses. I use the language of generational iniquity because a curse without cause cannot alight. But where there is generational iniquity running through a family that's been unconfessed and um, has been left undealt with, it hasn't been put under the blood of Christ, uh, that generational iniquity can be the very thing to which a curse will attach. So now we're back to Proverbs 26.2. And so that curse actually does have a cause, but many times people are unaware that this is in their family story. You know, I remember one time I was, um, I was in Africa <clears throat> and I was there to speak at a conference with a large African denomination. Um, we don't have it in any of the Western lands, except there's a few congregations in a very few cities, but in general, no one in the West would know this, this movement. Hang on one second. So I was there and um, one of the, uh, um, I guess, elders of that movement was a guy from Minneapolis and I got to talking with him and he was very, very ill, extremely ill. His wife had begged him not to come to Africa. She was afraid he would die. His own doctor had told him, don't go. You probably won't make it back alive. All of his intercessors had contacted him saying, don't go on this trip. You'll be coming home in a coffin. But he said, I feel like I need to go. I'm going to go. And, you know, if I die, I die. So he, I meet him at this conference, not knowing I was going to meet him, just to be clear. I just bumped into him. We got to talking. And while we were talking, um, he was telling me all of this. And I said, well, what's wrong with you? He goes, you know, Ken, I really don't know what's wrong with me. I'm just really, really ill. And I, last night, I didn't, almost didn't make it through the night. Hmm. All right. So um, suddenly, as I'm talking with him, I see the map of Southern Italy. And so I grab a napkin and we're in a hotel and, and uh, I draw on the napkin in my, I'm not a very good artist, but I drew as I could, uh, you know, the boot heel of Italy. And I picked an area a little bit north of where the heel would be if you're on a boot and where the, you know, the bottom of the boot itself proper would, would end. And so I just a little above that junction point, I, I put a point there and I said, does anyone from your family come from this area of Italy? And he said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, that's where my grandfather came from. And I said, oh, okay. And he told me the name of the town. I don't remember it now. He said um, he actually fled Italy to the United States because he murdered somebody. I said, wow, that, okay, that's pretty serious. And I said, so what happened? He said, well, you know, he came to the United States and, you know, he settled down and uh, started to raise a family. And that's where my father came from. And that's my came from my father. Okay. So uh, tell me more about your family story. He said, well, you know, during the great depression, um, my uh, my grandfather uh, went out one night to the chicken coop. There was a disturbance and there were two men stealing chickens. And he said to the men, please don't steal the chickens. If you need food, go ahead and take them. Just don't steal them. And one of the men pulled out a shotgun and killed his grandfather. Well, that's exactly the weapon that his grandfather had used to commit the murder in Italy. Then um, some years later, the son that had come out of the marriage, which was my friend's dad, 
um, that man was killed with a shotgun. And when I had first met my friend some years previous to this dialogue that I'm now describing, his brother, also the son of the father, who is the son of the grandfather, his brother had been murdered with a shotgun. And so I said, you know, um, I think I know what's wrong here. He said, what is that? And I said, well, there's, there's a curse on your family because of the unjust shedding of blood here. Now, they were all coming from Italy. I mean, you know, they were Catholics. And for some of our listeners, they'll say, well, that doesn't mean anything. But I mean, Catholics are Christians the way Jews in the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles were Jews. There's a lot of mixture in there, but, but they're still counted as somehow the people of God, albeit not, maybe not very devout. Um, so anyway, I, I prayed for my friend and I broke the curse and I commanded the avenger of blood to depart. And my friend was instantly healed of his condition. And he felt, he felt life come back into his body. And he went home and uh, has told many, many people that, you know, he knew somebody who knew how to break curses. And he's been, he's been fine to this day. Now he's had other problems. He slipped on some ice last winter and broke his shoulder. You know, he did get COVID, but, but nothing that has been life-threatening like this situation that he had. And it had all come about because of this thing with his grandfather. That's generational iniquity and a spirit of death had attached to it. Commonly that gets called a generational curse. But again, I like the language of generational iniquity much better. It's much cleaner. It, it, it tracks more nearly to what the Bible teaches about these things. And it's a good example of how this sort of thing can work. So um, now let's go on to Zechariah chapter five. Now we're in the post-exilic period. This is the Jews went into captivity. They've come back from Babylon. They're rebuilding their society. Um, the timing of this chapter five of Zechariah, we don't know exactly, but um, you know, it's probably in the, in the low 500s BC because the temple was rebuilt in the year 516 uh, BC. And so um, Zechariah says this, Zechariah 5.1, again, I lifted my eyes and saw and behold a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, which would be about 30 feet. And its width is 10 cubits. That'd be about 15 feet. So this would be the size of a, you know, roughly the size of a standard living room these days in a, in a modern built home, approximately. And then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the whole face of the whole land. Now, this is an angel speaking to the seer prophet Zechariah about a curse that's on the land. And here it says, for everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. Well, these are exactly the things that we read about in Deuteronomy 27. And so again, we see the fulfillment of this, and it's coming to rest on the whole people of Israel and God says, and I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timbers and stones. Well, that's an interesting thing because it tells you that God is still really committed to the idea that we be true to our word and that we not steal from other people. And there's all kinds of ways in which theft goes on. And many times people who view themselves as the righteous and the redeemed are the people who are guilty of doing these things. And so we have to be really careful when we think about this, that we examine ourselves thoroughly and say, 
you know, am I somehow transgressing the righteous ways of the Lord? Because even if you don't believe in the curse of the law, nevertheless, we are still expected to honor the Lord with our lives. And if we don't, I've seen these kinds of things come back around. There is kind of this sowing and reaping thing. And the scripture even says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. He who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap eternal life. So if you're sowing uh, murder, if you're sowing theft, if you're sowing discord, I, I, I don't know if it's the curse of the law, but there is the law of sowing and reaping, and this thing's going to come back around on you. And many times when we are ministering to people, we need to remit uh, that from over people's lives in order that they can get free of the stuff that's hanging them up. So can you just explain just a minute about how do we remit? Like, Yeah, um, the first thing we do is we have people uh, confess the sin that they've been involved in, or if it's like my friend with his, you know, Italian family, um, have them confess the sin of the family because this, this murderous thing had been there, you know, lying dormant. Um, so confess the sin. And, you know, this is, this is a really clear command of scripture. Confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. Um, doesn't need to be done in front of the whole church, but it does need to be done aloud with somebody who's a prayer minister. And I might add that prayer minister needs to have some degree of um, faith. They need to have some confidence that what they're going to pray and do is actually going to yield something. Because sometimes people pray in this kind of mealy mouth way. Those kind of prayers just dribble off your chin and fall to the ground. So the first thing we do is we have them confess. Um, and then, you know, they can ask for the blood of Jesus to cover it. And then, you know, Jesus actually gave a very powerful uh, tool to his disciples. He said, what you bind on the earth will be bound in the heavens. What you loose on the earth will be loosed in the heavens. And so now the prayer minister is going to pray. And I will usually put my hands on the person. It doesn't need to be particularly formal, but I'll put my hands on and I'll say, having heard your confession of your sin or your family's sin or both, um, in the name of Jesus, I, I remit your sins uh, by the authority he has given us to bind and to loose. So I don't have any authority in myself. I'm just Ken. You don't have any authority in yourself. You're just Grant. But Jesus gave the authority to bind and to loose. And it is interesting. The last thing he gave the disciples before he ascended into heaven, it's post-resurrection, but it's pre-ascension day. It's found in John 20, uh, verse 23, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven them. Now, prior to that, he had never given them that ability. He'd given them the ability to heal the sick, to drive out demons, to raise the dead, but he'd never given them that power because that was actually a power that was his as the son of God. But he was now commissioning it into the church ahead of the day of Pentecost, and with it, would um, Pentecost would come power, and with that, they would now have the ability to carry things out, as well as that, that ability to forgive sins. Now, we don't hand that out like, you know, peanuts on Halloween. We, this is something that, uh, that, you know, when people are confessing, and this is a proper um, repentance that's going on, that's when we use this power, but we can actually, in his name, not on our own, remit those sins, because Jesus said, if you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven him. By the way, side note here, someone's going to say, well, he said that to the apostles, not to Ken and Grant. Yeah, but but the last thing he said in the Great Commission was, um, all the power 
uh, is given to me in heaven and on earth. You're to go in the name of that power. You're to make disciples of all the nations, and you are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe. Teach them to do. Teach them to enact everything I commanded you. Well, everything he commanded them is healing and deliverance and um, raising the dead and so forth. And it also included late in the game, the ability to remit sins. And so we remit those sins. And then we say, now that there is no sin for the curse to cling to, a curse without cause cannot alight. Now that this has been remitted, we break the power of the curse and we command the enforcing demon behind the curse, depart. And many times, it's not every single time, but many times there will be a very dramatic manifestation of coughing or burping or flailing or vomiting or whatever as those spirits that have bound that thing to that individual or sometimes a whole family are coming free. I remember uh, teaching on this at a particular church meeting in Australia uh, in 2019, before the lockdowns came. And the, we probably had 200 people manifesting all over the room when we broke the curses that were over them from the things that they had themselves done or that their families had done that no one had ever taken care of. Then this is really part of the trouble that we have with our very lightweight repentance. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would have called it uh, cheap grace. But, you know, we just tell people, just pray and accept Jesus and it's all good. You know, all your sins are forgiven automatically. But in fact, in the ancient church, they were very punctilious and scrupulous about going through various and sundry sins that they themselves had committed in times past. They took time to reflect and, and call to remembrance things they might have forgotten. And even in their family line, they would want to, you know, clean up the stuff that was in their family line as well in order that these matters could be addressed. And so none of that had anything to do with the curse of the law. They just understood coming out of, in this case, pagan culture and the way curses worked in the societies in which they lived, they were like, holy cow, we want to get all that stuff cleaned up so that nothing can land on us going forward. Right. Well, that's, uh, that's a lot. And that's a good place, I think, to land. Well, we got one more, one more, we and then more? we can land. Yeah, one more. This will be quick. Book of Malachi. It's the closing verses of the Old Testament. We're in chapter four. And uh, it says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a curse. Now, if you're reading a more modern translation, it might say a decree of utter destruction, but believe you me, if you look it up in Hebrew, it's the same word for curse. So a decree of utter destruction. So how do we understand um, Malachi chapter four, verse six? Um, so in this passage, uh, in this passage, it explicitly describes something that comes on the people of Israel. Um, and by the way, if you, if you go up a little bit and read carefully in Malachi 3, the issue there was the withholding of tithes and offerings. Wow, don't even get me started on that one. People wonder why are their offerings blighted? Why are they not prospering? Oftentimes it's because the people of God are not giving God what is his due. But um, the passage implies that God cursed them, but I think a perhaps better way of understanding it would be that their lack of obedience opened a door to a curse 
and not necessarily one sent by the Lord. It's rather that God stood aside as the devil tried to exploit that opening, that chink in the armor. When he did, you know, they fall under that difficulty. And this, by the way, was a very big problem in post-exilic Judaism when they returned to their land. Um, Haggai speaks into this as well. I'm not going to turn there, but you could, uh, you could look at it. Haggai's only two chapters long, so he's not difficult to read, nor is he difficult to understand. But at one point, Haggai prophesies to them uh, around about verse five of chapter one. He says, is it a time for you, people of Israel, to be living in your paneled homes while this house of mine, which you returned from captivity to build, while it lies in ruins, now consider your ways. You harvested much, but kept little. You took your wages and put them in a purse or a bag with holes in it, only to watch the money fall out and for the wind to blow it away. That's kind of the thing that God's talking about here in Malachi. And it's because the people of God were shorting God. So you can see in this that there are many different ways that chinks in the armor can come about. But the one thing that I really want to stress is that all of this is avoidable if we will follow the right ways of the Lord. It's very simple. Live under God's covering and God will cover you. But we live in a time where people say, oh, that doesn't matter. This doesn't apply to me. The Old Testament doesn't count. God's ways are not a thing. Oh, God knows I have needs with my sexuality. Uh, it's okay that I'm eating blood. It's part of my culture. And on and on it goes. And all of these become things that can open doors to curses in people's lives. God wants us to live holy as he is holy. Peter quotes the same verse that's in Leviticus. Be holy, I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Holy doesn't mean sanctimonious. It doesn't mean goody two-shoes. It simply means being reverent and respectful of the ways of God. And in our daily life, uh, making sure that we leave birth around things that would otherwise be offensive to him. That's so good. That's so good. So much there. Um, hey, I was just, as we're sitting here, we're closing. Um, I know there's now I'll let you close. <laughs> now you let me close. But I know, as we're as we're thinking through this, I can just feel um, that this is hitting people uh, kind of hard. And so I'm wondering, can we can we end this one with a prayer? Ken, can you pray us out? Yeah, absolutely. I'd be glad to do that. So let's all pray. If you're driving, keep your eyes open. Uh, so Father, we thank you so much that Jesus came. And his blood is the perfect answer to all of these problems. Yeah. Lord, whether they're curses sent against us by witches or warlocks, whether they're uh, encountered in the jungles of Africa or in the mountains of South America or in the deserts of China, Lord, no matter where we run into these things, there is power to vanquish curses through the blood of Jesus. And Lord, I do thank you that as the scripture says, we are freed from the curse of the law. So at least we don't have all of that to, to deal with. And Father, I thank you that um, even in this conversation, we are raising not only our own consciousness of the, uh, the nature of the spirit realm, things that have been uh, largely ignored or dismissed for many years, decades, maybe even centuries. We're also being made aware of your incredible watch care and kindness over us, that you would love us enough in the midst of our uh, in the midst of our lost state, in the midst of our foolishness, in the midst of our rebellion and straying away from you, in the midst of all of that, you decided that you would make a provision and make a way. 
and that you sent your own son so that, well, in this case, curses could be broken because sin is being forgiven. And so I thank you for that, Father. I thank you for your goodness. And I thank you that we do not need to live in fear, that there is no curse that has been made, no weapon formed against us that can prosper, that the blood of Jesus triumphs over all of it when it is applied. We can't just take it for granted, Lord. We don't ever want to take anything you do for granted. <clears throat> but you have made it true that when we walk with you, then you walk with us. We can live under the shelter of your wings, and we don't need to live in fear of these things. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Ken, thank you so much for bringing this uh, to our attention. And again, uh, curse breaking can be found on uh, your website, uh, Orbis Ministries. Uh, dot org. Org. Okay. And uh, we'll go and check that out. So until next time, we'll, we'll see you guys right back here on the website or on social media. Uh, thanks for joining us. God is not a theory with Ken Fish. God bless. God is Not a Theory is a podcast of Orbis Ministries. For more information about Orbis Ministries, go to orbisministries.org. If you have questions you'd like to have Ken answer on the podcast, please send us an email to podcast at orbisministries.org. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. It's Julia with Orbis Ministries. I just wanted to let you know that if you'd like to learn more from Ken and connect with others in the Orbis community, you can download the Orbis Ministries app on your Apple or Android phone. On the app, you'll find a free teaching archive, a conference schedule, and an internal messaging community. A link to download the app can be found in your description. Thanks so much. God bless.